Well, we have an interesting speaker today. I've heard Jeff speak before. He speaks at the job networking um, programs occasionally. Turns out, after talking with him, that he is so enamored of the sound of his own voice, he'll speak anytime he's given an opportunity. <laughs> Much like me. But more interesting, um, to me anyway, is the fact that uh, Jeff has had a really interesting spiritual journey. Uh, he was, he's a former Mormon. Uh, and he has rejected Mormonism. And he has come into mainstream Christianity, as I guess what we'll call it. Um, an interesting subject, and, and one which, you know, he's probably, I, I think, well, maybe he's tired of talking about it. I'm sure everybody wants to hear it. And that's the first thing I did when I met him this morning was I started talking about that. But he's more than happy and willing to talk about it. He gave me some interesting insight to it. And I'm almost willing to say, gosh, it might be worth our having him back just to speak about Mormonism, given that we have a chance that a Mormon president will be elected uh, shortly. Um, but, Jack and his wife have been married for 40 years, two married daughters living here in the area, uh, three grandchildren, so there's plenty of uh, things to take up Jeff's time here, not the least of which is his speaking engagements here. And today, Jeff is going to talk. Oh, I've got to do something. Oh, I love being prepared. <laughs> A look into 2 Kings 4 and 5, and it starts off with Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him, and Naaman said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. A pretty heady statement, a pretty assertive statement for anybody to make at time. So if you'd all welcome Jeff, and I'll let him have a seat. Thank you. It is a uh, it's an honor to be here. Um, I left Mormonism. My family's Mormon. I was 17 when I realized that I just didn't really align with what they were teaching and what they believed. Been a Christian a lot longer than I was a Mormon, uh, but people are always interested in that. Also, also right now, just to address the issue, everybody. A lot of people ask, is it okay for a Christian to vote for a Mormon? <laughs> Well, I've read the U.S. Constitution, and you have every <laughs> to vote for a Mormon. Also, I would encourage you to read Romans 13, where Paul encourages us to pray for our leaders, and he talks about how God has called and placed those leaders there for our benefit. And when Paul wrote that, there weren't any Christian leaders. They were Romans, and they were about to kill a bunch of Christians. So, um, the religious... From, from those two points of view, you know, you, you vote for whomever, whomever God tells you you should vote for. Uh, but legally, you have every right to vote for anybody you want. <laughs> um, my wife and I have been married for 40 years. We recently celebrated our 40th anniversary. I figured she's going to keep me. Um, and it's been a pleasure. Now, I always like to start with a story from right before Louisiana and I married. Her father came to me. And he handed me a journal. 
And he said, I've written down everything that makes her happy. And I've written down everything that makes her sad. And I've written down everything she wants out of your relationship. Now, he didn't really do that. <laughs> but if he had, I would have been a fool not to have studied it. Well, I believe that as we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, God hands us a Bible. And he says, here's everything that makes me happy. Here's everything that makes me sad. And here's everything I want out of the relationship. And from that point of view, I believe that we would be fools not to study Scripture and understand what God wants from us. From that perspective... I really enjoy the narrative passages. Scripture is made up of several different, several different kinds of literature. You have the poetry books. Psalms is poetry. You have the prophetic books. And, and those are, you know, like uh, Isaiah and Daniel and the book of John's Revelation. Uh, you have the epistles, which are letters that are written for the purpose of information and instruction. And we love to spend time in the, epi in the epistles because there's so many lists and do's and don'ts, and we like those. And then we have the historical books, the narratives, where they tell stories. And we enjoy telling those stories to our grandchildren and our children. And we usually look at them as just a framework that gives us some historical background so that we can better understand the epistles and the gospels. But, you know, I believe that, that those stories are there for a reason and that there are things to be gleaned, principles to be understood, questions to be answered that are raised in those stories. And so I'm going to be talking this week and next week, looking at 2 Kings 4 and 5, and we'll be looking at some Bible stories. And the questions that come up, the, 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 things, the, the things that make us scratch our head as we look through those, I think they're things that we should wrestle with. You know, when you look at the narrative passages, um, I always wonder, you know, I want to list the characters. You know, when you go to a play, you, you get a, a, um, a program, a playbill, and it lists the cast of characters. And when you read a narrative, who are the characters here? Who is the central character? When you read a play, there's usually a star. There's a protagonist. There's the main person through which the story is told. And then there's the supporting cast. And as I look through that narrative, I try to identify who the characters are, and then I try to see which one I'm the most like. And that helps me gain insight into me and understanding into what God wants for me. You know, you look at it... Um, what happens in the story? What's the general story? What's the plot? Is there a moral? What's the lesson to be learned? Questions. The main point are the questions. They eventually make me examine myself, and those questions are the reasons that we study the stories. So if you have a Bible, you might want to join me in 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning at verse 8. I use the New Living Translation not because I have any personal affinity one way or the other, I just like the way it reads. So I use that one. But this story, the, one of the main characters is a prophet named Elijah. Remember there's Elijah, J-A-H, Elijah. His assistant was a man named Elisha. 
And these are the stories of Elisha. Now he has an assistant named Gehazi. And Elisha and Gehazi travel around Israel doing what God wants. Now we think of the prophets as someone who prophesies the future. You know, tells people what's going to happen. If you really study the prophets, about 90% of what they say is reminding people of what God's already said. He's saying, you know, get back to where you were. Only about 10% of the prophecies in the Bible, of, of the prophets' writings, deals with future events. 90% of it is saying, you know, God's already told us that we need to be doing this. And I'm making him happy. So you really didn't like to hear from the prophets. But anyway, one day Elisha, verse 8, one day Elisha went to the town of Shunem. A wealthy woman lived there, and she urged him to come to her home for a meal. After that, whenever he passed that way, he would stop there for something to eat. She said to her husband, I'm sure this man who stops in from time to time is a holy man of God. Let's build a small room for him on the roof and furnish it with a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. Then he will have a place to stay whenever he comes by. Now this is pretty significant. One, she's a, she's a wealthy woman. If you understood their houses in that day, the, the stairway to the roof would have been on the outside of the house. And what she's providing to Elisha is a, a nice place to stay because it's furnished. The fact that it had a bed and a chair was really significant. This is a woman of wealth. And the fact that they, she built him this house on the roof of this little room means that he could come and go as he pleased. He didn't have to come through the front door. There was an outside entrance. That's how their houses were built. And so she's literally giving the prophet of God a place to stay whenever he wants. And she's giving him the best that money will buy. So one day, verse 11, Elisha returned to Shunem and he went up to his upper room to rest. He said to his servant Gehazi, tell the woman from Shunem, I want to speak to her. When she appeared, Elisha said to Gehazi, tell her we appreciate the kind concern you have shown us. What can we do for you? Can we put in a good word for you to the king or to the commander of the army? You know, this, Elisha's well-connected. This guy networks, you know? <laughs> and to show his appreciation, he, he, for, for her hospitality, he wants to do something for her. And he says, you know, can I put in a good word? I know the king. I know the commander of the army. I know everybody that's worth knowing. He's not bragging. He's just trying to help her. And she replies, no, my family takes good care of me. Later, later, Elisha asked Gehazi, what can we do for her? And Gehazi replied, she doesn't have a son, and her husband is an old man. Now this is also significant. The importance of a son, of a male heir, in that culture was vital. Chances are, she was going to outlive her husband. And if you remember from some of the New Testament stories, you were dependent upon your children to provide for your old age. That was your Social Security and your 401k, was your kids. And she had no son. You remember Ruth, dependent upon a cousin to help take care of her. You remember the, the woman who kept asking the official in the parable in the New Testament to give her what she deserved. Women had trouble if they didn't have a male to take care of. In the, in the story of the lost coin, remember the parable of the lost coin of the woman who loses a coin 
and she sweeps out her house. This is in Luke. And she looks everywhere. Women at that time, you remember, you, have you seen the pictures of the women wearing the, the headdress with all the little coins attached to it? Well, that's their retirement. And you didn't have to worry about somebody stealing it if you were wearing it. And she woke, that woman in that parable woke up one morning and one of the coins had fallen away. And this was 20%, you know, 15% of her retirement income. This is money she had saved. That's why she tore the house apart looking for it. Women were dependent. And Gehazi says this woman, this wealthy woman of Shunem, because when her husband dies, the wealth goes to a male heir. And the, if it's a cousin or a nephew, he may not take care of her. So Elisha says, call her back again, verse 15. When the woman returned, Elisha said to her as she stood in the doorway, next year at this time you will be holding a son in your arms. No, my lord, she cried. Oh, man of God, don't deceive me and get my hopes up like that. But sure enough, the woman soon became pregnant, and at that time the following year she had a son, just as Elisha had said. Now, this promised child is one of seven promised children that you'll find in Scripture. <clears throat> God doesn't make that promise very often. But, you know, Abraham and Sarah were promised a son. Mary was visited by an angel and promised a son. Only seven times do you find it. This is a significant offer. Notice she says, Oh, no, my Lord, oh man of God, don't deceive me and get my hopes up like that. Her husband was old, she was old. This was a miracle. Now, you know, God's promises. We like to sing the old hymn about standing on promises. Everybody know that hymn? So what are they? How often do we study and understand what God has promised us? If we're going to stand on them, if we're going to sing about it, we ought to know what they are. But here this woman knows. Verse 18. One day when her child was older, he went out to help his father, who was working with the harvester. Suddenly he cried out, My head hurts. My head hurts. His father said to one of the servants, Carry him home to his mother. This child has grown up. He's probably seven, eight years old by now. And he's gone out to learn how to be a farmer. How to work in his father's fields. And he's out helping with the harvest. Some of the theologians and some of the studies or commentaries have read on this think the child had a heat stroke. And the father has him returned to his mother. Verse 20, so the servant took him home, and his mother held him on her lap. But around noontime, he died. She carried him up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and left him there. She sent a message to her husband Send one of the servants and a donkey so that I can carry, so that I can hurry to the man of God and come right back. This is really, you know, when you're reading the stories and studying the stories in Scripture, it's important to look for things that are a little bit unusual. And if your promised child has just died, you might tell somebody. You might show some grief. But she doesn't tell a soul. She puts the child in Elisha's bed. 
sends word for her husband to send a donkey and a servant to her so she can go find Elisha. This is unusual. What's going on here? So the servant, why go today? This is her husband, verse 23. Why go today, he asked. It's it's neither a new moon festival or the Sabbath. The husband has no idea what's going on, and it also gives us a little insight into his view of how God works and why you would need a prophet. Because it's like he's saying it's not Christmas, it's not Sunday. Why do we need a prophet, you know? It's like if your wife said, you know, you need to call the pastor, you say, why? It's not Sunday. You know, and also that made me think, how why, how do we categorize people that God uses? You know, do we put them in the context, our context, or are we open to what God wants us to see? You know, it's one of the reasons I study scripture, is for the longest time when I first started uh, as a Christian and started to study scripture, I wanted to find passages that would support my point of view. You know, I wanted something that would prove and support how I saw things. And then I realized that the reason you study scripture is so that you understand God's point of view. That you understand his heart. Now, are these the choir people? (laughs) (laughs) I've lost them already. They're bailing on me already. I've had more people than that walk out on me. No. Anyway. But why go today, the husband asked. It's neither a new moon festival nor a Sabbath. He has his point of view. But she said, it will be all right. So she saddled the donkey and said to the servant, hurry, don't slow down unless I tell you to. As she approached the man of God at Mount Carmel, Elisha saw her in the distance. He said to Gehazi, look, the woman from Shunem is coming. Run out to meet her and ask her, is everything all right with you, your husband and your child? Yes, the woman told Gehazi, everything is fine. You know, her son lies dead in the prophet's bed, but everything's fine. This is a time for a little commercial. Y'all talked about how you care for one another, and I think that's vital. The two most told lies in North America on Sunday morning are, I'll pray about it. You know, that's how we tell people no. Uh, And I'm fine. Somebody says, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm just fine. And inside you might be dying. You might be scared to death. And if somebody honors you, someone you know and trust, and they ask how you're doing. One of the things that the Bible teaches us, especially in the New Testament, is one anothering. Sixty-three times you'll find the phrase one another in one form or fashion. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. Bear one another's burdens. Confess your sins to one another. Anybody want to be first? Okay. But, you know, if we're going if we're gonna to show up at church and call ourselves Christians, we need to one another, one another. Seems that this class does a pretty good job. But if you're holding back, don't hold back. That's why we're here for one another. But she says, I am fine. But when she came to the man of God at the mountain, she fell to the ground before him and caught hold of his feet. Gehazi began to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone. She is deeply troubled 
but the Lord has not told me what it is. This is another really neat insight into how God worked through his prophets. We thought, you know, I thought if you were a prophet, you knew everything. But only, the prophets only knew what God wanted them to know. And in this situation, Elisha's saying, God, there's something troubling her, but I don't know what it is. The woman, though, a little picture here. Um, she saw Elisha as a safe place. When calamity struck, she knew where to go. Now, in the Old Testament, we needed an intercessor. If you were an Israelite, you needed an intercessor. You needed a priest to intercede on your behalf before God. You needed a prophet to give you God's word. If, you, if you'd study the Old Testament uh, temple ceremonies, once a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and plead with God, please forgive this people of their sins. He would represent all of the all of the nation of Israel as he stood in the Holy of Holies. You know, it's interesting they would um, tie they would sew bells onto the robe of the high priest, and they would tie a rope around his ankle as he went into the Holy of Holies because it was such an overpowering place. God's presence was so strong that he might be struck dead while he was in there. They had the bells on his robe so you could tell if he was still moving around. And they had the rope, because if the bells became silent, you could pull them out. Very practical people. But you needed that high priest. Well, if you read in Hebrews today, we have a high priest who eternally intercedes on our behalf before the throne of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't need an intercessor anymore. We can go directly to God. 1 Corinthians 11 Paul explains to the Jewish believers, you don't need an intercessor anymore. We can go directly to the throne of grace. That's why we pray for one another. That's why we pray. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, if you remember that moment, the veil, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was split in two. And that was symbolic of the fact that we can now through Christ, enter the Holy of Holies on our own. We don't need an intercessor anymore. The Shunammite woman knew where to go when calamity struck. Here's the question to wrestle with. Where do you go when calamity strikes? Do you go directly to God or someone who walks with him? That was her response. Okay. The woman is standing before Gehazi, verse 28. Then she said, Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? And didn't I say, Don't deceive me and get my hopes up? Then Elijah said to Gehazi, Get ready to travel. Take my staff and go. Don't talk to anyone along the way. Go quickly and lay the staff on the child's face. Two points. One, the woman says, I didn't ask for this. Help me. You promised a child, and I am overcome with grief. Elisha's response is unusual. He, he tells Gehazi, get ready to travel. I mean, ace, and, and he goes on. But the, the, Verse 30, but the boy's mother said, As surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I won't go home unless you go with me. 
So Elisha returned with her. Now Gehazi, verse 31, hurried on ahead and laid the staff on the child's face, but nothing happened. When I really started studying this passage, I started to wonder, what's the business with the staff? You know, why did Elisha send his staff ahead with Gehazi to lay on the child's face? Read some, studied some, um, and it seems that at that time, the prophet's staff had taken on mythic proportions. You remember Moses and his staff before Pharaoh, and how it, his staff turned into a snake and ate the snakes of the, of the prophets of, e of Egypt, of the priests of Egypt. Remember how Moses struck the Red Sea and it parted struck it with his staff. Moses struck a rock with his staff and water poured forth. Well, the people had started to think, you know, there's big magic in that prophet's staff. And Elisha wanted everyone to know that it's not a stick, but it's God who works miracles. And so he sends Gehazi ahead, tells him to lay the staff on the child's face. And he said, nothing happened. There was no sign of life. He returned to meet Elisha and told him, the child is still dead. Question for us. What's the prophet's staff in your life? Where do you imbue a little too much authority? You know, do you depend totally upon your church? Is your pastor the only one who can talk to God on your behalf? Now, I'm not trying to downgrade or denigrate anyone's church, but I can't find anything in the scriptures that says that our church is the only way. You know, Hebrews says, don't forsake meeting together. We're to be in a church. That's, that goes without saying. But it's what God does in our life through the church that matters. You know, the Bible, this book is not sacred, this object. The words on the pages are only sacred when we understand who inspired the words. Because the one who inspired them is sacred. This is just a book for us to understand his heart. Our church is a place to draw us closer to God. Our pastor is a man or a woman who helps us understand and grow. But they're not responsible for this. We are. Where have you assigned authority? What, is there a prophet's staff in your life? Make me stop and wonder. <clears throat> when Elisha arrived, the child was indeed dead, lying there on the prophet's bed. He went in alone and shut the door behind him and prayed to the Lord. And then he lay down on the child's body, placing his mouth on the child's mouth, his eyes on the child's eyes hands on the child's hands. And as he stretched out on him, the child's body began to grow warm again. Elisha got up, walked back and forth across the room once, and then stretched himself out again on the child. This time the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Significant. Elisha goes into the room where the boy's body lay. He closes the door. It's just him and God. And I, I've, I've looked at some, some drawings and some paintings done by the masters through the years of Elisha with his child. 
Because the scripture says he laid down, uh, placing his mouth on the child's mouth, his eyes on the child's eyes, and his hands on the child's hands. This Elisha embraced the dead body of his child. Now, Mount Carmel is at least 30 miles away from Shunem. If you're traveling by donkey, how long does that take? No. Long time. Because they had to go and come back. 12 to 24 hours. I, I don't mean to be crude or bring up something troubling to anybody. I had the honor of being with both of my parents when they breathed their last. And a body that has lost its life is not pleasant. And Elisha, because of his love for this woman and his trust in God, embraces a child who's laid dead for 12 to 24 hours. And he gets close. The, the paintings I've seen, he's, he's embraced this child. He's brought it up close. His face is literally in that child's face. And he's pleading with God to keep his promise. And God hears the prayer. And the child is returned to life. Now, question for us. Are any of God's promises in your life in need of the reviving breath of God's Holy Spirit? Is there something going on in your life where you need to get mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand, and say, God, make this alive for me again. Is there some aspect of your conduct? Is there something in your thoughts? Or do you have attitudes that God wants to die so that one of his promises can become back to vibrant life <coughs> in your life? I think it's such a great picture to wrestle with who we are before the throne of grace. Some of it's not real pretty. But that's this thing called becoming Christ-like. Uh, sanctification, becoming holy. If you read the book of Romans, Paul talks about how as God works in our lives, we become more like Jesus and less like us. Paul wrote, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. One of the ways that new person in Christ grows is to get eye to eye, mouth to mouth, face to face, hand to hand, and say, God, make me look and act like Jesus. Paul says that to those that are seeking Christ, we as believers smell like Jesus. That's a heck of a thing to say. I always take a little, little more time in the shower when I go like that. He says, to those that are not looking for Jesus, we smell like death. One of my prayers every day is, God, help me smell like Jesus to those that I encounter. Then Elisha summoned Gehazi, called the child's mother, he said, and when she came in, Elisha said, here, take your son. She fell at his feet and bowed before him, overwhelmed with gratitude. Then she took her son in her arms and carried him downstairs. Some closing thoughts. God always answers our prayers. I have never had a prayer that wasn't answered. 
Quite often the answer is no. You know? Quite often I look back and I'm praying and I'm saying, you know, God, uh, if you were smart, you'd do it this way. <laughs> now we, we flowering that up a little bit. You know, we don't always say it quite that way, but in a lot of ways we do. If you look at um, one of my favorite passages is in Matthew chapter 26. It's just a narrative passage. There's six vignettes of people in Matthew 26 where you get a picture of what's important to them. That chapter begins with a woman who comes in and pours out a vial of perfume on Jesus. Then the next person you see is Judas making the deal to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. <clears throat> then you see Peter saying, I'll never betray you, not me. <clears throat> and with every little vignette, you get a picture of what's important to that person. Even to the leaders of Israel as they plot to kill Jesus. Even to the arrest. We also get the picture of Jesus denying, of Peter denying Jesus three times before the cockroach. You see what's important to every person. But in the middle of that, of that chapter, you see Jesus in the garden, sweating blood and praying to the Father. And he says, you know, Lord, if there's any way, let this pass from me, but not my will. We see that with Jesus, the most important thing to him was the will of the Father. And I've realized that as I pray about things, I, Psalm says I should pour out the desires of my heart to God. But just as Jesus did, I have to conclude by saying that not my will, but yours. Not, my, not mine, but yours. And I found that when I pray that way, every prayer is answered. Maybe not <clears throat> like I want, but like God wants. Anyway, what do we learn here? Who's the main character? Well, I don't want to spoil it for you, but in any story from Scripture, the main character is God. We see him at work in ways that we've never considered before. With which of the characters do you identify the most? Are you Gehazi, who's just there being used? being told what to do. Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with that. Next week we're going to learn a little more about Gehazi and you might not want to identify with him. Are you Elisha? Are you the person that God uses in an incredible way? Maybe every now and then. Maybe once in a while. Maybe all the time. Are you the Shunammite woman who knows where to go in times of calamity? Are you her husband who just sees things in his terms the way he does anything trouble you in this story? For me, why did the child have to die? I don't like that. You know? Especially children. The idea of a child suffering, a child dying, breaks my heart. I don't like that. And why doesn't God restore every sad situation? I still wrestle with but what does this story tell you about God's character and his heart? One of the things it teaches me is that God cannot tell a lie. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. That takes me back to the question about what are God's promises in your life? If you study his word, spend time with other believers, and discover what that is, 
I promise you, God will keep his word. He cannot lie. Big question. Will you trust God enough to get mouth to mouth and hand to hand and eye to eye with that which needs revival in your life? Think about it. Pray about it. We'll talk about it a little more next week. We'll be in 2 Kings chapter 5. Thank you. It's an honor of being with you. May I pray? Holy Father, thank you for this time together, for this look into your holy word. Father, may it not be just an academic study, but a discovery of your heart for us. Father, if there's things in our lives that we should lay before you, show us what they are. If there's things that we try to ignore, may we wrestle with them. And yet, mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand, and ask your Holy Spirit to breathe life into those promises that lie dormant in our lives. Father, I pray that you would make us men and women of our word and men and women of your word. May we carry the name of Jesus well as we go about our day and our week. Father, in this week where we celebrate the freedoms that you have so incredibly granted to us in this country, May we never take them for granted. Especially, Lord, may we never take your grace for granted. Be real in our lives. Keep us safe, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.